1: newspaper since 1971 bonus time to ben jarofsky show as i speak it is what is today man i can't i've lost track of time friday july 14th 2023 uh i can't keep track of anything i talk endlessly about everything in the universe uh, and sometimes when I'm walking down the street, I'm talking to myself about stuff. I am uh, slowly losing my mind as the world gets more and more insane. Or I'm slowly fighting to keep from losing my mind as the world goes more and more insane. Uh, I will now read you not a headline. Usually I start these interviews with a headline with, so you know what's going on in the world. Uh, but with a letter that was just sent to me. Shout out dear friend Kevin Blackstone very related uh, to the topic we're going to be having, uh, sports writer. You guys listen to this show. You know, we're old friends, and he comes on. We talk sports and politics uh, from time to time. Uh, and he shares my love for Northwestern football. And everybody knows I've been talking about the Northwestern football. Hazing, race, politics, fundraising, transparency, bizarre, homoeroticism, In a sport that breeds macho and leads to uh, MAGA, what else can I put into this little universe that is so twisted and weird that has erupted uh, right here in the Chicago area over the last week? Uh, And so thank you, Kevin, for sending this to me. And it is a letter uh, that I had not read yet, but it's a letter uh, that was sent to the president of Northwestern University by uh, some of the faculty uh and it has to deal of course uh with the fallout over the revelation that there's a oh, it's twisted hazing uh culture at Northwestern's football team the head coach uh, pat fitzgerald was fired eventually Uh, We've talked in great detail about the the delays in firing him by the president of the university. Uh, And there was a second article by uh, the um, Daily Northwestern uh, ace reporters about uh, sort of the racial culture uh, at the football team. Uh, my distinguished guest, who's waiting to come on, wrote a column about that. Or addressed that, maybe the only uh, one in the Chicago area, the mainstream press that dealt with it. I urge everybody to read uh, the column by my distinguished guest, who will introduce himself in a little bit. But also that Northwestern article. So a lot going on here that says a lot about where we are as a society. Uh, and uh, but here's the the letter. This is the portion of this letter that the faculty wrote. Uh, to the president that I found very interesting. Finally, Northwestern leadership should halt the planning and marketing of a new $800 million Ryan Field until this crisis is satisfactorily resolved. Over the past decade, Northwestern has made major and high-profile investments in athletics. We share an interest in ensuring the future success of NU athletics and in stellar facilities where our students can compete on the highest level. But disturbing evidence of harassment and abuse and high-level efforts to minimize those problems suggests that we need to get the existing house in order before expanding it. Uh, That's a letter that this faculty sent to the president. Let me just tell you. As an old guy who's been watching the the developments at Northwestern, and this goes back to the '60s, because I my family moved to Evanston from Rhode Island because my father became a professor at Northwestern. So I've watched in real time, ladies and gentlemen, the expansion of the Northwestern Empire. They like built landfill in the lake. Okay, this is a constantly expanding universe that is just always envisioning itself as this a common, I don't know what like Harvard Ivy league footprint here in the Midwest, the dumb Midwest. Uh, and it's just has this great ability to raise money and spend money. If you think you're going to stop them, <laughs> they're going to let one little hazing thing, keep them from raising $800 million to build that stadium, man, I don't know. Professors, if you do that, kudos to you. But I think that president is going to take that letter and drop it in the wastebasket because this is business, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and uh, I think that coach was fired. Pat Fitzgerald, uh, largely, number one, this is me speaking, not my distinguished guest. This is me speaking, largely because his presence at that school was an impediment to raising the $800 million they needed to build that stadium. As long as he was there, they couldn't really get that money and build that stadium. So they got rid of him in order to build the stadium. You think they're going to stop building the stadium after they got rid of him? I don't think so. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. And then away we shall go. Take it away, distinguished
0: guest. You know my name and uh, serial number and all that stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Name <laughs> will do and title. <laughs> My, past. My name is Rick Tellender, and I am sometimes called the senior sports columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times, but I'll take junior, whatever.
1: Okay, and I bring Rick on the show from time to time because one of the few people left in the city of Chicago who's actually older than I am, uh, and so it's always good to feel like the young man in a conversation, and as such, <laughs> uh, for Exhibit A, I will show, as I did before, the book. Uh, Rick Tallender's book. In It came out in 1989, I want to say.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, the 100 yard back. On I know. That's the <laughs> 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 There's a picture of a young Rick. And, folks, this is what a Northwestern geek I am, okay? I'm a townie. I just always, when I'm with my Northwestern friends who are grads, Rick, I always go, guys, you're... Like you got this weird, bizarre allegiance to Northwestern because you went there, and you think it's like a superior school. I'm just a townie from Evanston. I was like, wow, sports
0: right on my lap, here, right yeah. down the street. But but those are the kids I, I hear from them all the time. Oh man, I used to sneak in there, and the guards would look the other way. Of course, once somebody'd run in, and I'd run in right beside him. By the time you were, they turned to get you. You're already halfway up the tunnel, and then you get inside. And it's like, sit anywhere you want, do whatever you want. It was a heyday for little kids. I hear that all the time. I don't blame you for that.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a heyday. And then it, to further go down, you may remember this. Uh, so back in the day, I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen, there was an all-star game in the city of Chicago. I think the Tribune sponsored it at Soldier Field. And it would be whoever won the uh, NFC, there was no Super Bowl. It would be the whoever's the champion of football uh, would play a collection of college all-stars graduating seniors who are about to go into the nfl and they would play uh at soldier field during the summer and they the college all-stars would practice at northwestern so i was such a geek Me, you know, my friends we ride our bikes up there we'd be watching the college that's where i first saw abe gibbon the former coach of the bears he showed up what a character man that blew my mind seeing that dude um <laughs> I've never seen a guy, I swear so much. Uh, and uh, still my favorite.
0: Dave <laughs> he, he, One time, he had he was wearing those Sansa belts or whatever coaches wore, and he had a six-pack of beer strapped to his belt.
1: <laughs> still the greatest, <laughs> greatest coach in the history of Chicago Bears. I stand by that. Um, anyway, uh, your book, The 100-Yard uh, Lie, in many ways, was like a pre-telling What's happening here in many levels with Northwestern, uh, the bizarre football culture, uh, the the strains to successfully integrate uh, black. Uh, players into the culture uh the and then the money aspect the hypocrisy where this is a huge money-making operation capitalistic operation uh and but the players (laughs) play for free uh and so you told that story in 1989 and i just think in many ways what's happening in northwestern now is like a new chapter Uh, to the 100-yard lie, which the subtitle is The Corruption of College Football and What We Can Do to Stop It. Uh, Talk about stopping it. I don't – did you (laughs) – that book was written in
0: 89, Rick. Any stopping going on? uh? No, what I I said in the book, and it still holds state, the only way to really stop it is to embrace it, know what you're dealing with, and then allow – everybody to participate, which is the players are doing now. It's the wild West with these portals and you can now pay players. There are players out there who are going to schools by not part of the school program itself, at least the money, but getting, you know, two, three, $4 million to come to that school to play. Uh, I believe there's a a player coming back to play at Northwestern on the basketball team. The the word is he's going to get $400,000. You can pay these players now. And, the NCAA doesn't know what to do because they repressed this for years because they had a great gig going, unpaid labor. And finally, I mean, I wrote that book. uh, My math isn't so good, but that'd be 35 years ago about almost 34, 35. Uh, It was because I was uh, covering college football probably harder than anybody else in the country because I was doing it for Sports Illustrated. So I traveled. Now most, papers did not have a budget to do what sports illustrated did i'd be at the university of oklahoma one week the university of miami two weeks later penn state you know texas southern cal notre dame all those places alabama and and so i saw things that were happening everywhere where even coaches and athletic directors didn't have that perspective because they knew what was going on in their uh with their team with their um you know, their uh, association, whatever their conference was, but they didn't know what was going on everywhere else. So I put it all together. I started talking to professors, historians. How did this all happen? How did it become something for sale? And it's really complex. The simple answer is students started football back in the late 1860s, Princeton against Rutgers, the first game. And it was completely outside of the university. The university didn't want any athletics at all. That was taboo. So then it developed and eventually the universities took over these kind of nascent athletic departments. Might have just been football and soccer. And so it became part of a university and it's never had anything to do with the academic mission. So it's always been a, a bad fit. And then the second thing is when the powers that be decided to commercialize it, sell it to TV as programming, which is all it is now it's, Big, big market advertising that people love because you don't know the endings. That's why it's such a good marketing thing. It's not like a movie or something. You don't know what's going to happen. And uh, they started making millions and millions of dollars. Pat Fitzgerald making $57 million for his coaching career. My coach back in the day, I, the most he ever made was $40,000. That's going back a while, but I think I would equate that to maybe $200,000 was the most he ever made. And, that, you know, okay, that's that's good, but you're not the upper class now these people, athletic directors, make millions. Strength coaches make – there's several of them that make a million dollars or thereabouts, uh, I mean, a bunch of them. And it's – you think, why? who, How are we making this money? And the reason is you can't pay the players because, oh, my God, that was taboo, and, which is an insane aspect that is drawn from old English uh, amateurism where it was just – Wealthy people sipping from champagne glasses, you know, running hurdles in the backyard of their mansions. That's how it, uh, that's why we adopted that form of of amateurism. They say it was from the Olympics. I did a lot of research on the ancient Olympics. Those guys got paid a ton. There was no (laughs) thing as amateurism. And if you were really good, Pindar the great Greek poet would write a poem about you. They'd <laughs> carve statues of you. You know, yeah. I mean, I'd love to see a statue of me in, in Evanston, tar- carved out of marble by, you know, Michelangelo or somebody. I mean, Rodin or somebody. I, you know, wearing a fig leaf and running, trampling somebody. How cool, so- how cool would that be? <laughs>
1: So I, I, I forgot to tell a punchline. The photo on the back of the book shows uh, a very young Rick Tellender, uh in his Northwestern uniform because he played Northwestern football, and it's kind of unique. I, I talk a lot on the show about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, having emerged as a public intellectual. I read his columns. I don't know if you're subscribed to his newsletters. I really enjoy, appreciate his newsletter. I'm trying to think. There's not a lot of football players who became sports writers. Uh, am I correct in saying that? Like you're like...
0: Uh, there's, there's a couple. Um, and they've got out John Ed Bradley was one. He wrote a while back, uh, you know, and I'm not, I think he became a professor. Mike Oriard became a, was a center for the Chiefs and had been at Notre Dame. He became a professor at, uh, and he wrote a couple books, a professor at Washington State or Washington. But as far as like actual... Sports
1: writers? Uh, Or writers.
0: Yeah. There's Uh, a couple uh, every now and then. Uh, Austin Murphy wrote for the Sports Illustrated. I'm going back years, and he'd been a wide receiver like at a, uh, you know, a, a D3 school or an Ivy League school. But like Big Ten, Big 12, Southeast Conference, no, not so much. I, I can the one guy I can think of,
1: uh, and I don't want to go on a tangent. Dave Megasee was a football player. He wrote a book, uh, which was like the first like uh, tell-all book for football. Uh, but not many. So the point I'm making uh, is that you can bring a certain perspective uh, to your reporting and your writing about the sport because you were part of it uh, and you were pursuing a career you uh, in football. So you mentioned your coach. I think I'm doing this from memory. Alex Agassiz, was that his name? Okay. Uh, he was a Northwestern coach in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, the current coach who just was fired, Pat Fitzgerald. Uh, I'd love for you to contrast, if you would, uh, Alex Agassiz, your first coach, and Pat Fitzgerald, the guy who's, for reasons I will not quite understand, beloved <laughs> – the team was one in 11 last year, ladies and gentlemen. But this let, guy, it go, <laughs> let it go, Ben. Let it go.
0: Yeah, come on. Come on. It's not yeah. all about winning, bud.
1: Yeah, no, that, I know. I, well, that's obvious because he was, again, one in 11. Uh, it's not all about winning. Um, so, if you would, contrast Alex Agassiz and uh, Pat Fitzgerald. What do they have in common and what is different about them?
0: Well, uh, I tell you, the thing that Alex Agassiz had that I don't think any coach is ever going to have again. He was a Marine in World War II, in horrible battle in Okinawa in the Pacific, Purple Heart, and uh, he actually went to college. was an All American football player. Went into the war. The Marines got out. Went to another school. He went to Illinois first, and then Purdue he was an All American there too. In between, in between, he fought for four years in. Or it was in the military in a horrible very not well-documented battles in the Pacific, not like they were in in Europe, Uh, horrible things. And um, he was, uh, I mean, the things he went through, I went down to talk to him before, you know, before he passed away. We had a really nice talk down in Florida to kind of bury the hatchet because it was a difficult time to be a player during the Vietnam War era. And uh, he told me things that I'd never heard, including when the, uh, the battle in Okinawa was finally won. And this is a battle where they used flamethrowers and bayonets, hand-to-hand combat, just murder on both sides, horrible. He and uh, some other minor officers were playing cards in a tent, and they heard all the hooping and hollering going on all over the island, and you know, guns shooting into the air and celebration. And I said, uh, "Coach, you know, what did you do? Were you all, all excited?" He Said, "No, we we just kept playing cards." And I said, "Really?" And he said, yeah, um, yes, we knew our next stop was Japan. And they knew at that moment that it had been estimated a half a million Americans or quarter million, some incredible number would die. And millions and millions of Japanese would die before they would give up their country. And um, I, it's almost like Dostoevsky was put in front of a firing squad or they didn't shoot him. Think of what that does to somebody. He was probably 20, 21 at the time. And, you know, then he becomes a football coach and he's dealing with us guys who are, you know, we're at Northwestern. Of course, it's different. And we're thinking, man, you know, this Vietnam War is not the same. I don't understand this. I don't want to go into this thing. I don't believe in it. I don't think it's right. Um, And then to bring it back to Pat Fitzgerald, you know, Pat is like a lot of guys who just buy into the whole rough and ready, macho, whatever. You want guys like him on your team. He's a middle linebacker, an incredible overachiever, just like Alex Agassiz was. And, um, you know, he has, I don't want to say a fascination with the military, but a great maybe respect or beyond. You know, sometimes the team would wear camouflage. I mean, and they, you know, they have the jet flyovers, you have the flag being waved, you have veterans brought on the field. He had... He had a, a, a an old Navy SEAL on the team. I think it was a guy who still had eligibility left. I think he wanted to train like the Navy SEALs. You know, there is this military aspect of football because in a way you're sending guys in over the top, you know, in, into the bayonets fix over charge. But it's not like that. It's a sport. And the thing is, you might want it to be like that and you might not if you're a player. Some buy in. And some don't. And it doesn't mean you're not going to be a good football player. It just means you have a different attitude. And I'll always bring it around to this. Some guys come in and they say, Oh my God, you know, this coach, he's my father figure. He taught me so much. He he you know, he was the man I looked up to. Well, you know, I I like screw that. I had a dad. I love my dad. My dad was my father figure. There ain't nobody else gonna become my father figure. So don't pull that crap on me. Now it worked for some players, they needed it, but those who didn't need it. I think that's where the problem comes in. This hazing—I guarantee at Northwestern there were a lot of kids hazed, a lot of players who just kind of ah, screw it, I'll do it to somebody next year when I'm an upperclassman. And then there's some that just said, "Hey, man, this this is undignified. This is uncivil. This is I'm being abused in a way. You're using power, might against me in a way that is uh, so demeaning. It's very similar to rape. I mean, yes, you talk to some woman who's been sexually assaulted, you say, "Well, just." can't you get over it? It's like, no, you don't just get over it. It, f- it festers. Uh, you have to take that seriously. And as we were talking earlier, Ben, you know, the, the problem with this whole thing with Pat Fitzgerald, he was a shining example, example of morality and ethics and rah, rah, and put his arm around my boy and all that stuff, you, you know, despite the losing, which you, you bring up, but you've cut a, you cut a wide, why, you know, it's a lot of it's, it's very lax, very a lot of slack because you know you're at Northwestern. You got to play Michigan and Ohio State and Penn State and all these football crazy places. But until this hazing thing came out, I disagree with your, your opening rant, which I really liked, by the way. Let me tell you, I thought it was great. <laughs> but I, I think if Ben Fitzgerald hadn't gotten into trouble, he would have been the point man on this new uh, stadium thing, which is absolutely. I I, I'm total. I mean, that's why. well now we're. By the way, I
1: didn't. Uh, this is a, a a point of contention I have with many, of my guests who sit through my opening remarks and then they refer to them as rants. I'd like to <laughs> think of them as reason discourse. Okay. <laughs> and when I had the first, when I had the operation to remove
0: the, this- I'm, I'm sorry, sorry about work- that. maybe that did under to your brain. You might have gotten in farther than <laughs> you realized. You know, <laughs> but the first day I came back, uh I was I
1: went on the mic, but the stitches were tight. So I I, I go, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to rant today. I'm going to be really because I don't want to rip the stitches. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it, 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 something you said, uh, but don't uh, no, no, to your point, absolutely. Pat Fitzgerald, Patrick Fitzgerald. The coach was going to be the upfront man. He was going to be the guy they sent out to the alumni to give the pitch, to give the sales talk. I'm gonna be here forever, ladies and gentlemen, you would say. I've got Northwestern in my blood. I'm never going to leave. My son plays for the team, kicking the money. And don't don't worry about the 1-11 record. And by the way, it wasn't just Big Ten teams, people, that they lost to. They lost to three
0: patsies at the outset of the season. I'm just yeah, you saying. Let it <laughs> go. <You> know, es- <laughs> they haven't won in this country in almost two years. That was in Ireland. Yeah, that's right. They won in right. it. <laughs> so
1: on. anyway, uh, Northwestern fans, you guys are a trip. Uh, but So you're right. And I think that they set the whole thing up as a, as a student of Chicago politics and of politics in general. This clearly was, in my humble opinion, set up in such a way to quietly bury it, uh, get it, a, announce it, but then get it away so they could go back to the business of using Pat Fitzgerald to raise the money to build the stadium. And those kids. At the Daily Northwestern, this is another element of the story, Rick. You gotta love because Northwestern has a hell of a journalism school. They they blew they blew it to bits with their revelations. Do you agree with my analysis?
0: Yeah, it's ironic and truly in in the absolute uh, meaning of that word that Northwestern would have a football scandal. Also what it, it may be known in certain ways for its athletics because it's in the big 10, but it's known for its, uh, you know, for its journalism department and the daily Northwestern where a lot of those journalism students work and what he teaches journalism students how to get, go for the real, the true story, tell it, find it, dig, get in there. Don't just let PR massage it out of the way. And Northwestern screwed up right from the start. Um, I mean, well, we knew what they were doing. When you drop a story on Friday afternoon, <laughs> come on, yeah. that's straight out of politics. Ben, you, you can maybe yeah. you can explain what that what that means when you do it on Friday afternoon.
1: Well, you're burying uh, you it. You know, yeah. In politics.
0: Yeah. You don't want anybody to know anybody know? It'll be gone by yeah. Monday. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, they did that. 2 weeks, they thought I guess they thought it would be over. Everybody was overmatched, caught by surprise. It was just Nuts, and what it took was one one whistleblower, and that's quite often what it takes.
1: Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I want to go back to um, contrast something uh, between Pat Fitzgerald and Alec Agassiz that you said. Uh, and um, But before I do that, i got to add something personal. I've, I've been really obsessed with uh, Bill Walton these days. I watched uh, Steve James' ESPN documentary, and Steve was a guest on the show. We talked about it. Uh, I urge everybody to watch it. But the thing about Bill Walton, this is a great basketball player, roughly uh, Rick's age, my age. He played for UCLA, and he was an anti-war prot- protester. He had long hair. Uh, John Wooden was a conservative figure, uh, the coach of the UCLA. Bill Walton later came. Bill Walton like and, and chafed with uh, uh, his coach, um, Wooden, when he was there. But later on, he became appreciable and would quote him and say he, this is the inspiration uh, and use him as a role model. Did you have a similar relationship with Alex Agassi where you resisted uh, when you were a, a kid at Northwestern and then you later, like, oh, my God, now I see him in a new light. I can really appreciate him.
0: Did you have a similar dynamic? Well- Yes, to an extent, I watched that Bill Walton series and was very interested in it because I went in 1974, or 75 They sent me out from Sports Illustrated to Portland because he wasn't playing to kind of embed with him for a week, you know, and it was a very, very strange time. And he had a very, very bad stutter. He was so skinny, his skin was almost purple. He was eating granola., I mean he was close to a breakdown. And it, a lot of things were happening, and uh, you know he would never call himself seven feet tall. He thought that's where becoming a freak was, and he is seven foot feet tall, maybe seven one, but he wanted to fit in. Greg Lee back at, at UCLA, the guard, was very very bright guy, and I was uh, happy to see them interview him. They always said, like, he was helping Walton, he was leading Walton, that Walton needed somebody to be his guide, his guru. And those were very, you know, there were revolutionary days, if you will. And Bill just couldn't handle being out of that incubator, that, that room that he was in, this thing where the press wasn't allowed, you know, you couldn't get close to the UCLA players, wouldn't handle everything. And they just won one national championship after the other. You get to the NBA... It's like, hey, you're on your own. You're with all kinds of guys, came from all over the place, have different attitudes, different conceptions of working hard. You were the coach. I think Lenny Wilkins was his first coach. Wilkins was mystified by him. I remember that, talking with him. So it was really a complex thing. And when he got away from John Wooden, I think Wooden had been able to, even with his sternness, like you can get your haircut or, you know, you're not going to, yeah, that's fine. You won't be playing tonight. It's that simple. You know, Wooden was old school, you know, dignified kind of you know, Christian, whatever you want to call it. And uh, Walton acquiesced. Now with Alex Agassi, my coach, I think what I realized after having played for him, he was always a decent man, but we had, we were trying to understand each other. And what I realized later and through the years and still do, is that he had tremendous trauma in his life. He was trying to make sense of his life the way he grew up. And I think a lot of us now, you know, you're, you know, a liberal guy I can just go with whatever the new progressive thing is, but there does come a point where almost you plant your flag and say, I can't take anymore. I can't take any more change. I don't want any more. You know, I don't want any more AI, I, whatever the latest technology. I don't want to wear goggles. I don't want any more uh, social media. I just want it to stop because, change is difficult. It's ambiguity is difficult. Certainty is wonderful. And Pat Fitzgerald and coaches always give you certainty. And it's their certainty. This is what we do. There's no question. My way or the highway. How many times you hear that? The coaches talk. You always hear we're going, I'm going out there. We're going out to battle. And anybody doesn't want to be with us. There's a door and leave right now. We've all heard that a million times. And like nobody gets up and walks out the door, but I, me being the kind of guy, I mean, I'd be tempted to say, you know, yeah, I'll, just, I'll walk out. Or hopefully, you know, I'll come back and play. But I am not going to be told how to think. I'm not going to be told what the philosophy of the world is. I will figure that out myself. And I think that part with Alex, it, we just, you know, he had two young boys who were our age when I was in college. And Paul, I uh, guess he went on to be like a sports director or whatever at uh, WLS. Or, um, I'm sorry, uh, WSCR, now, AM, Sports Talk Radio. I don't know if he's still there or whatever. And I remember Paul talking to me one time about his dad. This years later, years, years later. And I said, what was it like, Paul? Because Alex really did care about his sons, and they didn't want to go to war either. They did, and they weren't big. They couldn't play football. They were, you know, smallish guys. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, I ran a marathon. And I told him about it, and I was kind of proud of it. And, I, I said, you know, I knew I wasn't going to do very good. And I, I told him, I said, yeah, I just wanted to run it. I, you know, knew I wasn't going to win, but finish somewhere, whatever, do a marathon. And he, I said, what do you say? And he said, well, he looked at me and he kind of said, well, why would you do something you can't win? You know, and it was, he, wow. was, he was kind of <laughs> it Was It was sweet. It was sweet in a way, but it was like, damn. And there's that's a guy you want on your team. That's a guy you want going over the top with with the uh, the charge of the Marines when you're killing people in caves, you know. But it, it's uh, life is very complex, and it's uh, I think what I've learned from my old coach Alex is to be try to be more understanding of people's different upbringings and backgrounds.
1: Uh, by the way, the, the 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 thing I can't change, it was a great riff. And I, when you said there's something you just can't deal with, you can't change, Slack. I don't know if they got Slack at the sometimes, but that's a, a new way of communicating. Like email's not enough, texting's not enough. You know what I mean? No, you have to have a separate channel.
0: And they're like, oh, that's it. I can't. I'm an old man. I can't. There you go. You drew the line at Slack, huh? <laughs> the hell is Slack? You know it'll be... Uh, it's
1: not, I drew the line at Slag. I go, that's too much. Just text me. Call me. Here's a phone. All right. Uh, so before I went on that uh, Bill Walton tangent, this is the question I was going to ask. So you had a coach who fought hand-to-hand combat on Okinawa in a World War II, Purple Heart veteran, uh, Like saw war, lived war. Fast forward, Pat Fitzgerald, who I don't believe has ever served uh, in the um, uh, military. So clearly he's never been in real combat, but has a reverence for military culture, as you pointed out, uh, and will use military metaphors uh, in firing up his team. I would like you to comment and think about that and talk about that a little bit. Like, Could you recall Alex Agassiz who had actually seen war? Ever use war metaphors for a football game the way modern-day coaches who've probably never seen war, never served, use it all the time? We're going to war against Notre Dame, that kind of rhetoric. Did
0: did you notice that? Go ahead. no, No, I don't. But I think what you got from him is why wouldn't you make the ultimate sacrifice? This is only football. And if you're not willing to go out there and damn near kill yourself, do you know what it's like to be in war? And we didn't, and we weren't going to find out. Uh, because of that, this great chasm, I oh, thought it was awful, man. We, uh, you know, when I was at Northwestern, we, we were going to uh, spring practice and all of a sudden schools called off, go home, everybody go home. It was in May, I think April, yeah, early May go home. And we had, I remember Alex talking to me about the spring game when I went to see him before, you know, he passed away down in Florida. I think it was, I think it was Tarpon Springs. We sat outside under trees. It was a pond, you know, the old man and the, his, you know, student, if you will. And he told me that the spring game, there was, there was like a bomb threat and we moved the time for the spring game, which, you know, wasn't that big a deal. We didn't get like 50,000 people. You get maybe a thousand people in the stands, you know, whatever, a nice sunny day, people wandered in with their dogs or whatever. But those were the times that we were going on the Jackson State killings, the Kent State killings. Mike Adeline, my teammate, was from Kent, Ohio. He knew at least one of the National Guardsmen. You know, those National Guardsmen, I don't think they know specifically who killed somebody, but four people were killed. This was the time when uh, the students rioted at Northwestern, blocked off Sheridan Road, tore down the fences in front of Deering Library, the big wrought iron fences, built a barricade And, uh, so the commuters couldn't make, come through from one end to the other. And Sheridan is a huge artery. If you're coming from the North to head downtown, downtown, there were, there were cops, you know, my image is of military vehicles being around. You never knew when, you know, the stuff was going to hit the fan, if it was going to, uh, but that, and so you're trying to play football during the middle of all this. And if you were playing football, you were considered to be militaristic. I mean, you were... That was the thing. You're the offensive line is like, you know, the, the grunts. And then you have the wide receivers. And maybe, you know, they're the guys coming from behind on, you know, uh, tanks or whatever. And some of you are the guys throwing grenades. And think of all the, the language, the blitz, you know, the field general, the bomb. Uh, you know, all these, uh, this terminology from war, it is similar in the way that you draw up tactics way you attack weaknesses. But it's absolutely dissimilar in in the results and the casualties and in what you should get out of it. You should, there's a beginning, a middle, and end. There's out of bounds, there's rules. War doesn't have any of those things. And I to tell you the truth, my my old man was a bomber pilot in World War II. And these guys, you know, we talked about PTSD, started talking about it with the Vietnam veterans, but PTSD didn't start with them. And I know that my wife's uh, father he he served under General Patton George Patton he never talked about what went on over there the Battle of the Bulge and those things. never never spoke one word but do you think that didn't you know he was a he was a car dealer do you think that's not in the back of your mind a split screen all the time I think I've what I've come to realize is that people have a lot of lot of dynamics in in what they're doing and what they're covering up what they're dealing with on their own fears and, and weaknesses and what they're terrified of and what they're trying to resolve. I mean, being a human is very complex and football is a very, very interesting sport. Is It's, I'd say it's more interesting than any other one.
1: Okay. Uh, and by the way, to your point, I just want to give a, uh, the best in my humble opinion, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder novel that I can think of. And I've, this is one of my favorite books uh, Rick is Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, which is a novel about PTSD. I, whenever I do an acronym, I'm battling that dyslexia, so I got to make sure I got it right. Uh, Rick, I, I, you, I assume you've read it. Uh, it's such a popular novel, but if you ever well, get a chance. I've it. it. Which book? Uh, Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt oh, Vonnegut. Yes.
0: Yes. yeah. Kurt Vonnegut, yeah.
1: Yeah. If you go back and read that and think of it as a writer a human being kurt vonnegut struggling can't sleep at night because the things he saw at age 20 in war the battle of the bulge haunt him to the day uh and everything about the fantasies in that book are just all of his attempts to escape the pain to dull that pain that's in his head and i just when you went on that uh on that riff, I was thinking, yeah, slaughterhouse five, urge everybody. Uh, these are world war two vets. They won the war, the greatest generation ever. And yet they got their demons, you know what I'm saying? Rick, they got their demons. You
0: know, uh, Tim O'Brien, uh, the, was a war veteran and he wrote all these great, but going after Cacciato and the things they carried a really, really terrific writer. He, you can tell he's damaged. I remember going to see him at Evanston at a, at a book talk. And, uh, he just said, and I don't, Think I can write anymore? I, it was it was really sad, and I felt for him. Um, and he'd gone to Vietnam, you know. And the guys who went went for all different reasons, and I don't hold it against anybody. Uh, it's just you know to stop that 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 kind of tearing apart of the fabric. We got rid of the uh, the draft. That's how I solved it. Hey, it's a volunteer army. Don't yeah. go if you don't want to. That. Yeah ended everything. But I tell you what, if we went back to the draft right now, it would be the same exact trauma all over again. What do we do? What when must we fight? Mm-hmm. What do we fight for? How do even how do we fight? You know, they're talking about robotics. Uh, just read an interesting book about what are the ethical rules of using robots in in battle. And one of the rules right now is it's very strange. It's okay to be killed by a robot, a robotic plane, a drone, or whatever. That's, but it must be manned. There must be some human behind it. If it was just released, with told what its target is, and there's, you know, it's uh, going to shoot you. That's unethical. That like breaches the code. You can't use bayonets anymore. I don't think people realize that. No nerve gas, mustard gas, all those things from the first world war. War has been. I mean, if you can imagine something, trying to come up with rules. To where the 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 point is to kill somebody, but yeah. there's certain ethical ways to do it. It's crazy, and uh, I you know just hey, the older I get, I'm never going to come up with answers to these things. But boy, I, I do think about them.
1: Uh, wow, ethical ways to wage war. Uh, what a what a contradiction. All right, uh, so you were talking about the things that uh, are in the back of people's minds uh, that are unseen, and that brings me to the whole ritual of hazing in football. Uh, and uh, this, so as, ladies and gentlemen, it, there's two articles in the Daily Northwestern that I urge you to read. One has to do with the racial component of what was going on at Northwestern. Uh, Rick addressed that to a certain degree in a column he wrote last week, so I urge you to read both. The other one, of course, the far better known is the one where they dealt with um, the hazing itself. And, you know, Rick, I've just like, I think I said this, you I've said this on the mic and I said it to you before we went on the air. Uh, right now, MAGA is waging war against LG, uh, you know, just the gay, the boycotts of Target, boycotts of Disney, uh, don't say gay. Uh, and uh, trans people have been turned into uh, enemy number one. And the Woke is a concept they use uh, to just sort of lump all their people into a group to dismiss and then you got the, the most macho guys at Northwestern like engaging in this like homoerotic activity, uh, forcing people in a sense to, to engage if they don't want to. And I'm like, what is like going on here? Why why this fascination by the most macho of guys with something that like macho society is denigrating
0: help me understand this well <laughs> i'm not a psychologist but this is all about psychology it has to do with anthropology sociology uh you know biology or hormones things like that it has to do with so much history and uh it's hazing in my experience you know what I know of it, it always has three, one of three components, either drinking, that's be a fraternity, a lot of too much drinking, physical restraint of some form, big guys, you know, taping you to goalposts or something, or the sexual thing, nudity, or, you know, some kind of thing like that. It's um, instinctively a way to emasculate someone by bringing out their vulnerability when they're say naked or whatever, you know, the, some things they do, this thing, what, what they call it, uh, whatever I, that term, um, dry humping. Yeah. I guess there's wet humping, but you know, I mean, dry humping, we all know what it is, you know, thrusting like you're having sex with a guy, which is, yes, it would be homoerotic, wouldn't it? Because it's two men. But the guy doing it doesn't see it that way. He sees it as being demeaning to the, the subject. So I looked up the, uh, the rules about um, hazing at Northwestern, I and mean, it may be the rule in the Big Ten everywhere. But hazing is wrong. It defines what it is, all this, this subjugating someone and doing, you know, whether it's violence or whatever, in any way, shape, or form, even if the victim is, is willing, even if the victim agrees. Because at that moment, it's not explained this way, but I, I know this to be true. At that moment, if the victim doesn't have any power. They're, they're overwhelmed by the power of the others. You're not going to go against the football team. You're not going to go against your own teammates. You're not going to be the rebel who might get, might get more seriously pummeled or beaten up or whatever, or thrown off of the, the ship, so to speak, the, the team. You'll do anything to stay on the team. And the other power coaches have to keep you on the team and to play you. There's nothing worse than saying, the coach saying, you're never going to play for me. Yeah, or sit on the bench. That is the ultimate power. Now, the players, so you want to get along to some extent, or else you'll be that, you will be emasculated. Not playing is a form of being neutered. It's been your life. And people can't understand that power. when they say, well, when a coach, if somebody said that to me, or these guys did to me, I'd say, one guy wrote this text, he said, I'd, I'd be dropping fists. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't because you wouldn't be there in the first place and you would, unless you want to just blow up everything that you have, because you're trying to break the system at that time and it ain't going to work. It is not going to work. So, um, you know, hazing used to be everywhere, military fraternities, you know, any kind of secret club, any, anything, any sport hazing, uh, you know, women too. Northwestern women's soccer team in 2006 suspended for hazing, which had a lot of sexual stuff that they were doing, that the women were doing. So it's not particular to males. Uh, the, the, sex, the first thing you want to do to break somebody down is strip them if you want to get down to it. What do they do to prisoners or something? When you're naked, you're going, you're in the Holocaust. I mean, you are powerless, defenseless. You have been whittled away to nothing. So there's always going to be something like that. And then if you're restrained, that's the other obvious thing. And then if they can force you... In any way to do something you wouldn't do, like to drink to excess, you'll we'll hear that every now and then. A college fraternity, some kid will die from you know an alcohol overdose. So these are things that kids, I guess, will do. It's like Lord of the Flies. This we'd like to think we're better than that. Maybe we're not. We need adult oversight, and that's why they got Pat Fitzgerald. He, you can't say I didn't know. This is like Enron. This is like the corporate stuff, man. There's no longer can the CEO say, mm, that happened in uh, the distribution department. That happened in accounting. I don't know what's going on there. Nope. They nailed those guys, and they'd nail them now. You better know. If you want to be at the top, Harry Truman's, the buck stops here. Well, don't put it on your desk if you don't believe it.
1: Uh, did Was there this kind of hazing at Northwestern football team when you were there?
0: Well, I actually asked – uh, a couple teammates, including one guy who's a captain of the team, who's a couple years older than me, and we don't recall any. I don't recall any. Um, you know, it's sometimes you might think, eh. you know, we did crazy stuff in the locker room, but that, uh, you know, guys might be running around, you know, high but nothing where it was orchestrated to never restraining anybody, never doing anything. No, I mean, we, and there certainly wasn't anything where people would put on masks or there'd be 10 players who would go after younger guys. And one thing that was hugely different, and I think they should go back to, they never will. and It's wrong that they did in the first place. Freshmen were not eligible. Bill Walton, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Alcindor. They couldn't play on the varsity team at UCLA. We had a freshman football team. We always had freshman, freshman, based, or, yeah, freshman basketball teams. You couldn't play until you were a sophomore. You're 18 years old and you have 22 year old men. I mean, it's wrong to, to this very day coming out of high school you're nothing but a you know a dork yeah i mean you don't even know what a university <laughs> is it's horrifying you're yeah. thrown in there and this you know i mean i'm telling you all of a sudden you're there playing at michigan in, or ohio state in front of 100,000 people screaming they want to they want you to die you know it's like mommy where am i what's going on <laughs> you need to be brought into that man. Yeah, You know, and with you at Northwestern, you and your buddy sneaking in, that's money that we could have could have gone to the athletic department. <laughs> Sorry. <about that> <laughs> Wait, and then little, it got worse. Little rats, little street no, rats it, coming it, in. The fences.
1: Worse. <laughs> I'm going to, uh I'm going to be a whistleblower of uh, 30 something, 40, no, almost fi- over 50 years after the fact, Rick. So when I got to high school, a friend of mine, and I will not name his name, but he knows who he is we they had oh my god i can't believe this there was a very primitive computer class and you did key punching and you made he made these yeah, little yeah. cards sure yeah and he punch typed cards, yeah. punch cards and he this kid <laughs> i gotta give him credit he typed northwest i don't know who the northwest was playing maybe northwestern wisconsin saturday uh, october
0: 3rd on it and he
1: it worked! We would give the... the guy like should be
0: CEO now, right? I mean, he's a <laughs> yeah. yeah, genius.
1: Yeah, he's, hey. I think he's on the board of trustees at Northwestern.
0: Just kidding, Northwestern. Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: so anyway, yeah, I I apologize to the entire 1970 uh, Northwestern football team because I did deprive you of the revenue that you needed uh, to have a decent team. It night. didn't go to okay. us.
0: It so went... You deprive some athletic director or coach of another bonus.
1: Yeah. Well, th- the way the real dimwitted Cub fans say it, see it like if you give more money, you get, you allow the Ricketts to squeeze more money out of Wrigley Field. That's money they could spend on a free agent, Ben, and <laughs> as opposed, to they're going to put it in their pocket. Um. So, all right, uh, let's deal with the racial element of this, and you address this uh, in your column. Uh, I urge everybody to check out his column uh, that ran. I think it was Thursday. I can't remember when it ran, Rick. Um, but uh, like you talk about dehumanizing human beings, like that—that you described it. That scene where f- uh, the black players lie down on the grass at the the training camp in Kenosha uh, and eat watermelon, and so they're not using their hands; they're lying on their stomachs and they're eating the watermelon. I mean what the hell, Rick, what's going on? And, and, and it's out in the
0: open. You can't say you didn't see it. It's
1: literally out
0: in the open. One thing I, I need to b- make clear, though, all the freshmen had to do with it. So you to be a, it was black and white players, but fair enough. egregious when you see a black player with, you know, just on their T-shirt, now they're taking their pads off. They're lying on their stomach. There's a towel in front of them. There's a watermelon slice with a big rind on it, big, big, not just a little slice, a big one. And you have to put your hands behind your back and you see them posed with their heads over the watermelon because then it's supposed to be, a, you know, as I said, a laugh riot that you eat the watermelon as fast as you can while everybody screams and yells and cheers. And it's like, well, okay, why not do hamburgers or why not do carrots or, you know, the imagery. I did, you know, kind of some research on the imagery or the... What is it about the imagery of watermelons and blacks? What's the racist element to it? Because the watermelon is not inherently racist. It's just, you know, it's a fruit that we all like. But it goes back, it goes back to after the Emancipation Proclamation. There's a lot of reasons for the watermelons. One of the things was the freed slaves were raising watermelons and, you know, right-wingers, Klan members, people like that uh, didn't like that because it was a sign of freedom. So then, there was this backlash to make to turn the watermelon into some kind of demeaning thing. You see, you can see all these old postcards and photos and stuff with you know a black guy with just a caricature grinning, holding a watermelon. You know, so it really is a it's it's almost like a, a noose. You know, it's not much different. Or a burning cross in certain ways, or what somebody says, uh, oh, yeah, you, you fried chicken has become that way, but not as much because you know, watermelon is more specific. But a coach, I'm sure Fitzgerald didn't mean it to be racist, but it's just tone deaf and, and blind. I mean, think about it, think of the imagery. I've sent you, a, you know, a, a photo of, of that, and it's just this is just wrong. I mean, it's I wouldn't want to be one of those, uh, you know, again, you go along with hazing because you do, you're always going to go along and that is no reason not to call it hazing. And if you want to do this, you think it's team building. See, that's the other thing. You get this, this bizarre dichotomy. Is this good or this bad? I guess it's good for me to do this because it's team building and everybody's yelling and they think it's great. I think it's demeaning, but I must be wrong. It's, it messes your head up and, hypocrisy and things like that you don't want. It really can make you crazy. So, um, you know, maybe it's possible those black players who did that didn't care, weren't aware of the imagery, or didn't even, yeah, it's fine. It's the end of practice. It's hot. I'll eat some watermelon. It's no big deal. But um, I don't know. I, I, You know, it it may have been blind, uh, just uh, kind of benign racism, if you will, just not understanding Racial differences, you know, we talked about the hair. One of the players said they had to cut dreadlocks, but the white guys didn't have to cut their long hair. I don't know about this stuff if all that is true or what is a personal just the way somebody saw it, but all this is coming out. It's just a, like a cascade of, of things that seem to be in this wonderful program. I mean, seem to be part of what was a wonderful program.
1: Uh, I I think uh, that that second article, I've said this on the mic, so there were two articles that the Daily, Nor- West, North, Daily Northwestern ran. Uh, the first one had to do with hazing, and that came out Friday, He was, the announcement that he was suspended. Saturday, the article on hazing came out. And Sunday, I think it was, or at least that's when I saw it was on a Sunday, it was uh, sent to me. The article on uh, the racial aspect of the culture came out. And then that's when the... Um, Uh, President changed his tune and said, Well, maybe I should reconsider the punishment. (laughs) The punishment two weeks. Uh, It's like a vacation. Uh, And uh, I should reconsider it. And then on Monday, he was fired. Uh, Rick, my sense of it is again, I stick by this. It's all about raising that money for that stadium. It's all about there's money in this. I I just think it was too much for the university to bury uh, the hazing and then. This twisted uh, racial element with the watermelon, uh, and the,
0: you know, Ben, you know, I mean, power and might, uh, they always seem to win, and violence, you know. I mean, Cormac McCarthy, a, a writer I loved, an author, and a lot of people did, you know, he did All the Pretty Horses and mm-hmm. No Country for Old Men, and uh, you know, other great, great movie, the Coen brothers made into movies or whatever. Great author, and they said, Why is your stuff always really so bloody and violent? because it's very intelligent, very, very bright, well-written stuff. And he just said, because that's what humanity is. And violence is how power stays in its position. It can be violence in that you can uh, be undermined. Your job can be lost. You can be ruined. It doesn't always have to be somebody's legs being broken or being shot, but you get that. Where does the power come from? Power comes from money. Uh, When I see these people who are multi-billionaires, um, Pat Ryan runs Northwestern to a large extent. I mean, a, a large part of Northwestern, the athletic department. He was going to give, I think, over $350 million to the new stadium. Uh, and I looked it up Now, I said he's got $8 billion. He's a billionaire. And I could get into a whole separate thing about being a billionaire. He made his money selling in, or in insurance. And I'm thinking, you have more money than probably a million people put together And you made it by taking money in and not giving that money out because isn't that what insurance is? Uh, You know, you take in money, you give out more, you go broke. He somehow was smart enough to know how to do that. He has his name on so much in the athletic department area. I played in Dyke stadium Then one day it's Ryan field because he (laughs) did it, you know? And so he's going to have a huge say, not only on what goes on in the athletic department, but don't forget, I found this out when I wrote the hundred yard line and I went around to all these presidents, all these different places. They are subservient to the big money elements at the schools. Um, Northwestern has an endowment of, I don't know, 10, 12 billion, something like that. You know, Harvard has, I don't know, a trillion, God knows. But money is what makes things go around. Money is power in this country. And capitalism, we chose it. It is power. And I think we forget that at our um, you know at our our own loss. Yeah. Uh, you have to remember that. Where does it start? How, who makes these decisions? The president could be asked can tomorrow, probably if Pat Ryan gets enough people together. Um, you know, this is not run by students. It's nice and sweet that students are there. You know, they're the kind of like the product. They ain't the power. And uh, the older I get, and the more I see this, I, I realize it's true with countries. It's true. I remember uh, writing about the uh, the Jets. I mean, excuse me, the Nets when they first went to Brooklyn. They're bought by this oligarch, Russian oligarch uh, Prokhorov, I think his name was. And I remember talking with him. He granted me an interview in Brooklyn. And finally, this is maybe ten years ago, uh, whenever they moved from New Jersey. And I said, you know, I I was doing research and I saw this thing and somebody said, um, in Russia or in the United States, you call them robber barons. Here, we call them oligarchs. And I did some research on how these guys got so fabulously wealthy. You know, when the, when the curtain went down, when Perestroika and Glasnov and all that came about, the Russians, they just had like an auction for mines, for everything. And if you're lucky and you're pals with somebody, you're overnight a billionaire. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and so how do you beat that? We fight against that forever. We, yeah. we just do. It's the way things work. Underneath everything, man. Underneath anything that works is money, somehow, some way. Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: That was a great.
1: Uh, that was a great riff. And uh, to your point, uh, in the aftermath of the hazing scandal when it first erupted, and I was texting all my the, the people in my Northwestern universe, of which there are surprisingly many. <laughs> They were all sobbing. Oh, my Pat, he was one in 11. Uh, uh, You could tell he's a Northwestern man. Uh, One very astute uh, friend of mine uh, wrote back, The decision is in Pat Ryan's hands. And he was the first guy. This guy wrote this to me on the, I'm like, I'm not going to name his name because I know he does not want his name used. But, you know, I'm thinking of you, my brother, and you are right. And Rick agrees with you, okay? He he said that. And as soon as he said that, Rick, you know, the light went on. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's all about that stadium. And it's in the hands. not just, I mean, I'm sure Pat was, the Ryan is like Pat, like I'm his friend, uh, would be the number one guy. But there were other rich guys in the room, too. You know what I'm saying? The metaphorical room. Um. All right, we'll close with this. Interesting column. Got a shout out to uh, the Sun-Times editor. I have it right here in front of me. Uh, Jeff Agris, am I pronoun- pronouncing a- it correctly? A- Agris, yeah. good, uh, good guy, good guy. Uh, he's an editor uh, at the Sun-Times, and he writes a, a weekly uh, media column. Uh, wearing his purple flack jacket. We could do a whole uh, segment on this one, but we're closing it down. Media type Wilbon is our Northwestern's Board of Trustees, and it's an article or an essay about Michael Wilbon, um, who is, of course, a, a ESPN uh I don't entertainment figure, I guess is what he is now <laughs> extremely successful, very good at what he does. Yep. Also a very proud graduate of Northwestern university. I'm sure if he was here, it would explain to me why really they were far better than that one and 11 record, uh, from last year, just to remind you that Northwestern fans, uh, but he gets into the issue of a conflict of interest between a media type who a personality on the media and ESPN sports of, a journalist uh, being on the board of trustees. I got some feelings about this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as a man who's spent well, what, 50 years in journalism. Go.
0: Jeff Agress nailed it in the paper today. Very fair, very correct. Uh, you know, Jeff does a lot more than just write that media column. He, I was telling you, he basically, he's the guy that oversees stuff. He does it by the, you know, knows his P's and Q's. He's a journalist through and through proper, no shortcuts. I mean, like I told you, I'm notorious for misspelling names. and I, It's terrible, but he'll fix them. <laughs> and he and Chris DeLuca basically are make sure the sports department runs properly. And uh, Jeff did something that I think all of us, Rick Morrissey, Mark Potash, myself, you know, others have thought about. Um, Pat Finley, you know, other guys on the sports staff, um, you know, maybe Maddie Kim has, I haven't talked to her recently, but we all know um, Chris Brennan, Christine Brennan, too, and Michael Wilbon, proud Northwestern alums, went to Medill, many awards, very successful, very well-spoken, and good people. I like them both. I, I, Michael Wilbon, I could tell you stories of nice things that he has done that would cement him, you know, with anybody. You realize he's a, such a decent guy. Um, but they for whatever reason, obviously because it's a big feather in your cap, they became members, asked to become members of the board of trustees at Northwestern. Well, when you do that, they now, ha- they must recuse themselves from talking about uh, Northwestern and probably about college football or, anything, or the Big Ten because the conflict of interest is just obvious. And um, they should be called Michael Wilbon uh Northwestern administration or uh, Northwestern official, Michael Wilbon, but not sports reporter. And I'm not sure that I, Wilbon probably would agree with that. And I think they both have kind of recused themselves. I don't know, but obviously sports writers never get asked to be on anything. You know, they <laughs> might be, get asked to be on the local softball <laughs> team, but board. Are you kidding me? They wouldn't want me on anything, yeah. nothing. Uh, you know, yeah. not even on the local little dog patrol, walk the dog, <laughs> you know, it would crabby old. SOBs. Anyway, um, so it's a great flattering thing, but with it comes a responsibility and also a um, uh, kind of parameters that you can't ethically cross. And Jeff wrote about it today. And it's the first time I've seen somebody write about it and kudos to him.
1: Yeah. Kudos to him is indeed. And um, yeah, uh, it's a complicated world out there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he, Wilbon, he had an interesting point. He goes, I'm not a journalist anymore. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, he, he is, um, a pundit or a personality, an entertainer. He's not a journalist, uh, in the way that those young reporters who broke the story. That's,
0: that's tough tough line. Everybody's a journalist now. Uh, You know, the citizen journalist is kind of what we're competing against. So to declare yourself no longer a journalist, I mean, Fox News is doing that, saying we're not journalism, we're entertainment. But everybody took it as news because the line is hard to, you know, you're reporting things, you're analyzing things, you're breaking stories. Where does being a journalist start and end? I've I've long argued for um, nobody listens to me. Makes sense, but that journalists would have uh, credentials. You would be a um, licensed journalist. You could write for anything if you wanted to, but just like doctors have licenses, yeah. you have to have one to drive a car, drive a snowmobile. Accountants have licenses. Uh, financial planners do. Journalists, are like, yeah, hey, yeah, come on, anybody. Why not have something you've passed some board? Board certified this, board certified that, uh, and you just put it after your name. It says, I don't know, you know, pro writer or something. But yeah. they're not going to do it. So we're all journalists, bud.
1: Uh, thank goodness they're not going to do it. Because just the – you were doing on that riff. I'm thinking, oh, my God, every test I've ever flunked every
0: year. say a thing. No, listen. You know what you do? You'd go to what? South Carolina and pass it.
1: Okay. Oh, that's a Northwestern joke. I'm no. I, 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 I surprised you didn't say Iowa. Northwestern okay. guys love making Iowa out to be the dummies. Across uh, the river. <laughs> just go to Iowa. You'll pass anything all right uh you know the funny thing about this conversation first of all we've gone on for over an hour i always tell my guests about 45 minutes uh rick and i both have the gift of gab uh we didn't even talk about the thing that i originally reached out to rick to talk about which was the my beloved bears i still a bear i'm still hey northwestern guys the one in eleven Wildcats. I'm still a Bears fan, and they
0: were three in- and one and eleven. Listen, you know what's worse than that? They're one and eight in the Big Ten the last two <laughs> years. Okay, if you want to really get on them, and wait. Have-
1: time out. one and eight. Yeah. In, uh, no, they 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 didn't. They got swept in the Big Ten last year.
0: No, they beat Nebraska and Ireland. Come on, oh, yeah, you know. Fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's called fact They're checking. In the or wherever they were. <laughs> I right, uh,
1: yeah right. <laughs> I apologize, yeah, Wildcats. Oh, <laughs> uh, who can forget? We will we'll, we'll always have London, uh, Northwestern fan. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> we'll, always uh, anyway. yeah, we'll
0: always have Wembley or whatever. Yeah, we'll
1: always have Wembley. Anyway, the Bears were three and fourteen. So I actually, I think one and eleven uh, is worse than three and fourteen. <laughs> but I am a Bears fan. I remain a Bears fan. Uh, and so this is great. We didn't get to it because you know what? This means I get to invite you back and we'll talk bears, uh, stadium. That's what we were going to talk about. Oh my God. You got to get Rick going about the cartel, the NFL. Oh
0: boy. Uh, I'm uh, sharpening my knife. Yeah. (laughs) I got nothing else to do. Like you said, though, I got to go take a nap. (laughs) This this is so exhausting.
1: (laughs) All right. Just to fire you up before you take a nap. I'm going to show you this picture. Look at that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen,
0: that dude is on steroids man oh my god
1: this is a young rick tellender db this db northwestern (laughs) (laughs) db that's great uh uh, anyway thanks so much rick i appreciate you taking the time to talk to me all right
0: it was good ben enjoyed it
1: all right that's rick tellender i'm ben drofsky take care everybody